Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And, and you're yeah. listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two great ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive. They're titled Game Changer and That Fear Creeping Up. So it was actually me that brought these stories. Yeah, so tell us. <laughs> and I, I know, I wish I had like some like beautiful reason that I chose these. One of them is a bit newer. I think it might be this, the latter one, That Fear Creeping Up. I can't remember. That's not true. That's and not true. And they were both by the same storyteller oh. from the same interview. Oh, wow. Wow. Thank you <laughs> for that. maybe it feels fresh, so <laughs> yeah, really we can did. talk about that when it comes up. <laughs> All right, so both of these storytellers are... I don't know. You know what? I'll just, I'll let you unpack that. But the, <laughs> the, first, the first one is titled Game Changer. I remember my freshman year of college when I came to Valpo. And the first day, I was in a class and everyone was going around introducing themselves and saying where they were from. And I said I was from Gary. And the first response I got was, oh, you made it out. And it almost made it seem as if it was a war zone. Like I said, I had come from, you know, the trenches of Iraq during battle. It, like, really made me upset. And then the next comment I felt was more offensive because someone asked, you know, so how many children do you have? And I didn't have any. It was odd to me that someone would think that that was an appropriate question to ask someone because I was an African-American woman from Gary. And it got me to thinking, so what do these people really know about Gary, Indiana? Is this how people see me? And almost kind of became my mission while I was at Valpo was to change the way people saw Gary, how people saw people of color and the knowledge they had of people of color. Because it was hurtful. Like, that is one of the proudest things of my identity. Like, I love saying, you know, that I'm from Gary, Indiana, that I'm an African-American woman. But at that point in my life, I felt like it was played more so as a negative than a positive. So it became frustrating. Growing up in Gary and then going to Valpo, people's experiences and the way they talked about things were completely different from like my frame of reference. I remember a student having a fit in class because she had asked her mom for X amount of dollars and her mom gave her half of that and she just felt like she was just so privileged that her mom should have given her this money. I grew up from this idea that, no, you work for what you get, you know, and you're just thankful for what you have. Or seeing so many students, I think, in Valpo taking their education at times for granted. Oh, I'm flunking this class and it'll be okay for them. And for me, like my livelihood depended on this. Being a first generation college student and in my neighborhood being one of the first people to go to college, that was major to me. Like I wanted to be that example. I guess the game changer for me was realizing that there was this difference and mindset that people have from where I was from and where other people seem to be from and like where they were in terms of maturity, in terms of just like life skills, like listening to people in classes that had never washed a load of clothes before for themselves. And it was amazing to me because you're taught these life skills because you have to. And things that I thought just were like really small were like major stressors. Like they had to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning to go to an internship. I didn't see why that was like such a huge issue when normally I was still up at eight o'clock in the morning if I didn't have a class going to work to pay for me to be in college. 
This is WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, and uh, the co-hosts here today are Reagan Skaggs, Willa Walsh, and me, Allison Schutte. And we are talking today about two stories pulled from the Flight Paths Initiative by our host, Willow. Um, so yeah, let's dig in. Who do you, how, how do you want to start, Willow? Well, okay, so maybe, I mean, the first thing that stuck out to me from her story was she compared people, like, realizing she was from Gary to being in, like, the trenches of Iraq. Like, what, how, how, how did you, how did you make of that? Because that, that, like, that surprised me. That, com- that the comparison yeah. surprised you, or isn't um, didn't um, Spike Lee make a movie called Chirac? I feel like um, I, I can't remember how long ago that would have been now. So I think other people maybe are making this kind of comparison, thinking about what maybe used to be called the ghetto or the inner city to war zones. Right? There's this impression from the outside, from people who don't know cities and neighborhoods, um, especially those that have been you know, um, disinvested in. They don't know how to understand what that looks like, except how it's filtered to them through media. So, you know, especially in the region here, the perception of Gary by anyone, I think maybe who lives outside of Gary and even outside of Gary currently, right? Because we've interviewed a lot of former residents of Gary who also hold this current perception that it's a dangerous place. It's a scary place. It's a place where you're at risk. So that's what I heard. I don't know. Um, Reagan, does anything else come to mind for you with that comparison to Iraq? Well, what I was hearing was her being like, I don't under, this is a really inappropriate comparison. Why are people asking me, oh, you're from Gary, as if I had this very terrible experience of being Mm -hmm. from like a war-torn country. I am a person who is always trying to learn things, um, and one of the big things that I'm trying to like teach myself now is like seeing and understanding places like Iraq and Iran. Um, like a lot of, I'm trying to learn more about the Middle East. Essentially, is what I'm trying to say, um, and especially like the U.S.'s impact on the Middle East and like what that has like looked like. And I think that I don't know. All I can think of in this moment is like she's having a very similar moment to a lot of people. And there's this um, interview I saw of a a student at a university and he was from Iraq and it was people asking him how he did his homework, like how he knew how to use like the internet. Oh my God. Because they just assumed (laughs) that that he didn't have the internet just because of where he's from. Like that he had, he would never have had the experience of navigating Google. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just, I'm stuck on that right Mm -hmm. now of like, oh, wow, she's from a place that I am familiar with. And she's having this very similar experience of a place that I'm not familiar Mm with. I think that's really interesting. This is maybe a slight tangent, but because it's the 20 year anniversary of when George W. Bush launched the war in Iraq in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of reporting that's been going on, at least on NPR. I'm a big NPR listener. <laughs> and they were interviewing one person who, at the time, was in charge of one of the museums, like so where a lot of the um, cultural artifacts were kept. And that person was trying to enlist the army in protecting the museum from being looted and or, you know, destroyed by bombs and stuff. And the military was unwilling to engage, saying that that wasn't um, like a priority. Mm. And for this person, you know, he was commenting on the age of Persian culture, Iraqi culture. 
And it was a, this kind of reminder, like we think, we think America is like a, the cultural mecca, or you know, in this case, your example was technology. So I suppose that feels more contemporary than cultural. But you know, technology mm-hmm. is culture, and I do not think we remember that we are a young country, and like these other cultures that we think of as backwards, are so much more ancient and. Like, I, I don't, it's weird just to keep repeating that they have these rich cultures. Um, so what else am I trying to, to say? Like that there's, like we think they're backwards because they're developing countries and we totally don't see, don't recognize the wisdom that they would have to bring to living in 2023, Mm -hmm. like based on what they could bring forward from their cult. We just don't even see it. And I think there's a kind of analogy to try to bring it back around to Gary because, you know, Gary has a very rich cultural tradition too. We're not talking about it being as old as Iraq's culture, but because of the current perception of Gary, like people do not think about Gary residents as at all, like having that rich understanding of who they are so it can only be a comment like oh you made it out you know Mm -hmm. I mean I've said this before but it's like if you go on google maps here unless you're like on like unless you click like avoid highway and you're like right at the edge of Lake Station or New Chicago or something like it is not going to take you through Gary like Mm. you are not it's not going to take you and so there's so many different ways that like we just like yeah. We don't even have to engage with Gary. We can just go right around it. And it's just like, so it creates this like really significant otherness that we just don't even know what it's like, even though it's like 25 minutes away. But, and it also reminds me, like I was watching a TikTok where there's a new thing where AI can make art. I don't know if you guys have heard of that already, but essentially like you can type something into an AI bot and then it can generate images based on like a compilation of images yeah. that it's gathered. And so there's one TikTok account that posts like different cities and then it's like these cities as people and then like the AI will generate like what I think somebody from Phoenix, Arizona looks like or sort of that sort of thing. Okay. <clears throat> and so they did it for Gary and oh, these two people, the t- oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then so the two people there, literally it was like a zombie apocalypse. They, it oh was like, God. like just they're like, they were in like this like hunter gear and they had like gashes in their face and they were both white people too, which I thought was interesting. Huh. But yeah, but I, I left a little comment, you know, a little link to Welcome Project to see. <laughs> what is, do you, I, okay, this is maybe a tangent again, but like, what is the AI pulling their yeah, So that's a good from? question. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. But so, but it's so interesting to think that whatever, because it's, what I do know is that it's at least hundreds or thousands of images that it's right. pulling from. So it's interesting to think whatever it's being pulled from yeah. is getting this sort of yeah. picture of Gary like that. Ugh boils my blood man yeah i mean the other comment that she gets besides oh you made it out is how many children do you have yeah i mean the other major trope that we have in the region of gary you know like that there's somehow like this lack of family support or there's like sexual proclivities or something you know like Mm -hmm. just and that there's single mothers and It's such an odd, consistent perception that um, particularly white folk have of black 
urban communities. Mm-hmm. And to have the, I don't know, like, I think that the storytellers reacting to this too, the gall to have that, like, this, to think that you could say that question. That's loud. true. That's so true. <laughs> No, we're all nosy. Everyone's entitled to be a little nosy, but like you can be nosy and not in public and in front of a bunch of people and be like, oh yeah, you're from Gary? Cool. How many children do you have? Like this person who is, I, if they're a traditional student who is probably 18, 19, maybe even 17, like let's ask this teenager, how many kids do you have? Like as the child of a teen parent, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's not be disrespectful. And of course the... The part that's so hard about it, this storyteller is so good at like reflecting on the contrast between her pride and being able to mm-hmm. say, I'm from Gary. I think she even uses the word love. I love saying I'm from Gary, Indiana. We've heard that from other mm-hmm. storytellers in the Flight Paths Initiative too. And to have somebody like take that, I was going to say take it away from you. I, I would guess the storyteller would say, it's not taken away from me. I can still love saying that I'm from Gary, Indiana, but to know that you're going to be, that that is going to be read in a way completely counter to how it, how you mean it's it. It's a pride that comes with baggage. It's a similar thing. mean? <laughs> it's a similar thing to like, I can very openly say that I'm a proud gay woman. I am. I am those things. It doesn't mean that I, there are not repercussions for that pride. And they're not anything to do with me, but there are homophobic people in the mm-hmm. world, and they are going to react to the fact that I am a proud gay woman. So it doesn't impact my pride, but it, it does impact how that pride and how I walk through the world, like how that is perceived. And there's just not, you know, it's just pride with baggage. You can be proud. You should be proud. But understand that not everybody is going to be on that train with you. <laughs> yeah, she uses ends up using the word frustrating. Mm-hmm. Like it was played more so as a negative than a positive. So it became frustrating. And I, I'm trying to remember the tone she said it in. Like, I don't even know if frustrating is quite strong enough of a term, but I feel like there is that, that divided sense that you're talking about Reagan where like, it doesn't touch her own pride, but then you're aware that you're not include. I don't know. Is this like the social context thing? Like, so you're not going to be included in the new place you're in in the way that you want to be because people are going to yeah, read you and change who you are. It's a marker. Yeah. It's like a thing that marks you that you don't necessarily pick. You know, like it's, it's a thing that you walk through the world and it's, if I tell people I'm from Warsaw, Indiana, that's going to be a very neutral for the most part, unless you are very into Warsaw, Indiana for whatever reason. It's going to be a pretty neutral response. Like, oh, cool, I'm from X place. It's not going to generate a response. It's probably not going to inform a ton about me. They're like, oh, small town Indiana. There's some assumptions that go with that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, that's not going to impact how this person interacts with me or like the perception that they have of like my upbringing in a major way. It doesn't define my personality for this outside viewer. Whereas for this like speaker, being from Gary defines her in a very specific way to an outside force. Yeah, you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. With me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And today we are listening to a story from our Flight Paths Initiative. This storyteller is born and raised in Gary. And in the story we played at the top of the hour... She's reflecting on um, arriving at Valparaiso University as a student in her first year 
Um, and when people find out she's from Gary, they react to her very differently, A, than it sounds like she expected, and B, bringing forward all the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, Willa, what else did you want to maybe highlight about this story, or did you want to hear us talk about? Um, well, I was also thinking about, um, like, because she's not only her identity and her pride and how that's not tracking with the people around her, but also, like, where she finds herself in this community of people who, you know, don't recognize, probably don't recognize her as a full person or just seeing a lot of stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And then another level of that, which makes her experience really hard, is that she's noticing that the people around her are a bit more financially privileged than her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just this sort of like, she, she, you know, the word she uses is maturity. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Reagan, you're smiling. <laughs> I struggled. I, I obviously do not have as much going on as this person did. Like, I don't have to deal with racism on campus uh, when I was at Valparaiso University. I, I'm not trying to, but I really struggled um, with the lack of financial awareness and the lack of, I don't know how to say it, just like how to do things awareness. Like, she describes people not knowing how to do their own laundry. And, like, I remember also being like, I don't understand how you never had to do this. Like, I, it, just, it was literally, like, just unfathomable. Like, to a point where I had a really hard time relating to a lot of my peers. Um, one, because there was, like, a clear wealth disparity. Which I don't remember being as big of a deal in high school, but became a very big deal in college. Um, and then there were all these people that just, they didn't just they just didn't know how to do things. And I didn't know how to deal with that. And that's not necessarily, that's not to say that it's something I took on. I was like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to do laundry. That wasn't the vibe. Um, but it was just something of like, I don't know how to talk to you. And I feel like our worlds are very different in a way that I don't fully understand because we've lived so like I don't know how to talk to you. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I have okay, quick tangent. <clears throat> um there's a TikTok um like theme going around um that's like like tell me the most insane thing that somebody has said to you and I it's but it's financially motivated. And one guy was like he said somebody was in my like meteorology class and they told me a hack for parking. He's like, yeah, I don't park in the student lot. He's like, if you just park in front of the front door in the tow zone, they tow it to the impound lot and it's only $125 to get it out of the lot. And so I just take an Uber after I get out of class to the impound lot and that's just only $125 a day to park. Like that's that is so similar to how I felt being at Valpo. Like people would just say insane things to you, and you're just like, we are not on the same planet. Like you rolled out of bed today, and I go, I went to work at four a.m., so I didn't starve this month. Like, yo, can you help me from your more recent experience as students at Valpo? Um, And I think already it's been four years for you, Willow. Yeah. And then when did you leave? Oh, 2020. So so it's been three years for you. Okay, so there's a little gap, but not much. Um, like how how um, many students did you feel were? Okay, let me try it this way. <laughs> when we say we're a predominantly white institution, right? We're mm-hmm. thinking like 80 percent of our student body is white. Mm-hmm. I think that's about like, right. Like, what about the class range? So like for people who could afford like a $150 parking ticket. Like 
what's the percentage there or like then like what's like a middle class versus what you how you would identify as working class kids yeah honestly because even when we take non-traditional students into account I, which in my particular program was for whatever reason, there were a fair amount of non-traditional students. Um, it felt like, and again, I, this could just be a perception thing because uh-huh. uh, I didn't take numbers. It felt similar. It felt like an 80% okay. thing of people who were middle-class or from middle-class families. Um, and there's like a certain, um, I call it college poor. <laughs> there is a certain college poor that happens, but like, I don't know how to explain this either. Because until college, I wouldn't have described being poor as like a cultural thing. But there is, it was very clear to me that this was the people's first time being poor. And it was in a way that oh, wasn't, I see, I see saying, yeah. it was in a way that wasn't very high stakes. Yeah. It was like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to like, you know, I think the, the stereotype of college students eating ramen and whatever, like, yeah, sure. Like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff wasn't necessarily uncommon, even for the middle class kids. But it was like their mom still paid their car payment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you weren't like, like, you overspent this month and you maybe shouldn't have done that and you needed to work on your budgeting a little better as like a human being, but like, you still have gas. Like, you don't have to worry about that. Like, that's never been off the table. Someone's always going to pick that up for you. It was like low stakes, like poverty. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it wasn't really poverty because it was just like you were, you just lived in a dorm and that's just a weird existence to have restricted yeah that moment so So, it's not poverty in the way that yeah so like that kind of thing was like relatively more common but if we're talking like low stakes it i would say it felt like 80 Mm percent of people were you know upper to middle class yeah i guess i was asking in part because from the teacher position you know it's a little bit hard to tell by visual cues i mean some people like you can tell they've got at least enough spending money for like the nice nails, hair, jewelry mm. kind of stuff. But a lot of times students are not dressing up for class. Yeah. So, um, you know, the sweats kind of like neutralizes. Um, and I think sometimes you can tell by what people contribute to conversations, certain kinds of experiences they've had or haven't had, but not every text that we read would bring up, you know, issues of class. So I was just thinking like how, often would you two or this storyteller have encountered someone like really didn't know how to do their laundry? I mean, like I come from a middle-class family, um, but I knew how to do my laundry, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. so I don't remember that level of privilege, but I think I wouldn't have been primed to see it necessarily either because I would have felt like a certain amount of ease um, class-wise with whatever my, whoever my peers were for the most part. What else does she, the storyteller, seem to equate with that kind of financial privilege aside from a lack of life skills? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the entitlement, this is the word the speaker uses, and honestly it's probably a word I would use too, the entitlement to um, somebody's parent sending them money I have never had a parent send me money. Mm. I was thinking about it the other day. No one has ever sent me money hmm. for any, I never, never, ever, ever. No one in my family, like they might if I asked, but I have never just like, that's never been an expectation ever. Well, what would it take for you to ask? Um, I would have to, it would be a, a very emotionally taxing yeah. and then it would be a loan. Yeah. 
it would be something you paid back like if as soon as possible because you're not going to hear the end of it which fair enough but you're not going to hear the end of it till you get it paid back no one has ever just given me money ever like that is such a foreign concept to me Mm -hmm. and i didn't realize how common it was for other people's loved ones to like just give them money well, she did ask for it. No, I understand that. But just like in general, like the understanding of like, yeah, no, I can ask my parent for $20. I'm like, I would rather die. <laughs> yeah, this, this also doesn't sound like $20, but. No, uh, it absolutely I wasn't. Agree. But I'm just saying like my experience is also, I would like, I can't even a- imagine asking my mom for like $20 to go like in high school and stuff. Like, no, never. I would never have done that. Like, and no one has ever just sent me money. <laughs> It's so bizarre to me. But apparently it's like really common. Like even for some of my other poor friends, like it's pretty common for um, loved ones to send them money or to like provide in that way. And I, that's very foreign. Mm. But yeah, she says you work for everything. And I think that would be, that would be my experience also. There's something kind of ironic about that because the, you work for what you have is like the American kind of claim about merit, you know, mm-hmm. and like earning instead of taking handouts, you earn what you have. Um, and like typically American culture points at people who come up in poverty or working class and say, you're getting handouts. So it's like so. It's not contradictory. I think it is just irony that mm-hmm. in this case, the working hard class, which is probably more true <laughs> to, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but in this case, the class that is working hard, socioeconomic status that is working hard is the working class, working poor, and it's the privileged student who's not working for what they have. In fact, they're willing to toss a class, oh, I'm flunking. Okay, big deal. Um, It's just such a... It's like one of those things where what's true of you, you project onto other people. (laughs) I don't know. It's just so mind-bending. I wonder if, like, part of the frustration, too, is, like, you know, if, like, working hard actually got you anything, like, that would be fine and dandy. But unfortunately, it's like, while, I mean, this was true for me, it's like, while you're going to work every day, you're going to miss things like internships mm-hmm. and free jobs, you know, things that get, that gain experience. And it's not like you can leave college and then put, like, Starbucks on your application. Like, I couldn't mm-hmm. do that. Like, they would be like, okay, and, like, how does that relate to research? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's... It's like it's not even transferable so you can get further than the other folks around you. But it's like, great. So like Nancy, who never had to pay for anything in college and didn't know how to do her laundry, had a fancy little internship. And oh, now she's a branch manager or something. It's like it's like the privilege maintains the disparity. It's Mm, like even working hard, you can't even get past where some of these people can get just because they're getting things for free. Like it's not. I don't know. My freshman year roommate, who was ultimately perfectly fine as a human being, um, perfectly regular. Um, she was from Carmel, Indiana. Oh, my God. oh that's like the <laughs> really expensive <laughs> suburb of Indy, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, some of the best high schools in the country. Uh, everybody's, you know, they got a good tax bracket going. Uh, very expensive place to live. Yeah. 
uh, not the most in touch person I've ever encountered. I will put that out there. And um, her parents, you know, they paid for everything. She had like a credit card from her parents, like all that stuff, whatever. No big deal. We also, we didn't talk that much. So it wasn't like a huge thing, honestly. Like I didn't like, we didn't hang out. So I wasn't really like overly aware of it. I just, she would tell me about it. And I remember one time she was sitting on her bed and I was sitting on my bed because these dorms, ladies and gentlemen, they are small. (laughs) (laughs) And we're talking for very, probably the first time that month, you know. And she tells me how she was upset with her parents because she wanted to use their Costco, like, membership to get two more pairs of glasses that just, like, for aesthetic purposes. She also needed prescription glasses. She wanted, like, two more pairs of glasses for aesthetic purposes. And mine, at the time, were fully being held together with tape. Oh, and I remember no. just sitting there and realizing, like, one, she fully doesn't understand what she's doing right now. She fully doesn't get it. It's fine. Like, she fully doesn't get it. And just just feeling like, wow, other people live real different, huh? Like, it was just, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this complete and utter lack of awareness of this person. Like, my glasses are, like, barely hold together, barely holding together. I've needed a new prescription for God knows how long at that point. And she's just like, yeah, no, I want to get like two more pairs of glasses so that I can just have more to match more outfits. And I'm like, you go, girl. (laughs) This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. At their station, we rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. So please consider supporting the station by visiting the website wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax-deductible, and we here at Listen Up would sure appreciate it. And this is Welcome Project Radio uh, with me, Allison Schutte, Reagan Skaggs, Willow Walsh. Today we're doing our thing with two shows from, or two stories from the Flight Paths Initiative, actually both by the same storyteller. Um, and this is a lifelong Gary resident, and in both stories she's reflecting on her arrival at the university as a student. This one is titled, That Fear Creeping Up. I remember my freshman year of college when I came to Valpo. The first thing I saw when I walked on campus, and I guess it's going to seem very rude, but wow, there's a lot of Caucasian people here. I had never seen so many like blonde-haired, blue-eyed people in my life. Everyone in my neighborhood looked like me. Gary, by the time I was born and was living in the city, was a very homogeneous city, predominantly like just an African-American city. I guess when I was on campus, I didn't feel a sense of safety because I was so used to everyone looking like me. And when I stepped into a place where everyone didn't look like me, it became very, I guess, nerve-wracking at times. I remember listening to people talking about how they were scared to, you know, come into Gary or, you know, to even drive through Gary because what if this or what if that? And me never having that fear, but me being afraid to walk down the streets in Valpo. And sometimes I still feel that fear creeping up. One incident in particular was towards the end of my sophomore year of college. And me and two friends, we had decided we were going to go out to eat. And so we had went to Around the Clock, which is a little restaurant that's really not too far from campus and it's walking distance. And we stayed kind of late. 
And so it was getting dark. And as we were coming back, we had hit the 7-Eleven, which is like maybe a street off of where campus is. And we saw like two pickup trucks with Confederate flags on them. So at first, you know, it was this fear. And it was like, okay, we're just going to walk. They have this right. We'll just ignore it. And they turned their like brights on. And they like drove behind us for like miles. It seemed like we were running. And we ran to like one of the staff members' homes. And we're just knocking and we're knocking. And so we went in and we're just breathing hard. And we're like almost in tears. And we told him what happened, and he's just like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And at that moment, it reminded me of all, like, the negative things that I heard family members saying and I heard people in the community saying when I chose to go to Valpo. And it really made me question, like, is this a place that I should be? It was just, like, a horrible week. We had got on one of the V-Line buses, which is the public transportation in Valpo, and we had asked to, like, get off at J.C. Penney. And at first, the driver was, like, really nice to Kelly and my friend Kelly, um, she's Latino and African-American, but she doesn't present as such from facial features you would necessarily be able to tell. And so the bus driver was really nice to her. And then I got on and we were talking and like his attitude completely shift. And he drove past JCPenney and didn't open the doors. And then we saw him let off other people off the bus. And he was just like, oh, have a nice day. I'll be back around this time to get you. And, and so then he waited till we were like in a completely different area from JCPenney. I was like, oh, you guys can get off now. I was like, but this is not where we said we were going to get off. You rolled past us. He's like, oh, I must have not heard you. Well, you have to get off now because I'm going to pretty much turn around. And I was like, I know. And you turn around and go back to JCPenney. And he got so upset. And so he eventually drove back to JCPenney and we got off. And we didn't catch the bus back. We, like, walked back to campus. I remember just thinking, like, why? And it just kind of made me feel like I didn't belong in that community. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with Reagan Skaggs, Willow Walsh, and Allison Schutte. Today we have uh, two stories from our Flight Paths Initiative, lifelong Gary resident, um, and a black woman, because that's how she likes to uh, know herself. Um, and she is talking about arriving on campus um, and then some particular experiences around uh, racial harassment that that she experienced at that time. I like that she um, she was like, I don't want to sound rude, but there's a lot of <laughs> Caucasian people here. And like, I hate that like whatever responses that she's gotten to like objective truths have made her feel like that's a rude thing to say. But like, I don't know, that's just like so to me, so emblematic of white people to like get so uncomfortable when people call out whiteness mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, <laughs> but willow whiteness is the default yes. and if you're noticing the default then that's just silly <laughs> we can't say white uh-huh. <laughs> that's my last job i would always say that i'd be like you know people and like other people like, all right all right all right rachel <laughs> No, I do, obviously, this is racism, this is just explicit racism that this person has had to face in the community that we all live in, and I hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that it's an important um, call of attention to what safety means and what mm-hmm. a nebulous concept yeah. safety is. I feel like, um, as a white woman, but I feel like white women in particular really, like, in order to reach better places in their, like, anti-racism um, in their feminism, all these things need to grapple with that concept of safety a lot more. I think that's mm-hmm. what holds white women back a lot is this concept mm-hmm. of safety um, and what that means for them, which for white women is inherently very like patriarchal, very traditional. Um, and like not all women, not all people feel safe in Valpo for the same reasons that a lot of people do feel safe in Valpo. 
Um, and I just feel like it's important to really name that. that so falsity. are you trying to talk about the additional level of danger that comes with being black or brown in Valpa, which is a predominantly white city? Or I just wanted to make sure, because you're not necessarily saying, well, let me just ask. <laughs> like white women do have fears for their safety. Absolutely. Around gender. You're mm-hmm. talking about patriarchy. You mentioned patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not like alighting that. Mm-hmm. You're just saying that when white women talk about safety, they might not be fully cognizant of how that risk and danger and vulnerability gets increased if you're also a person of color. Yeah. And how what a lot of white women would mark as safety is not inherently safe. Oh, I see. Okay, so if I'm a white woman, I feel safe here, then all women must feel safe yes. in this space. Got mm-hmm. it. Um, okay. And, like, safety being, like, a well-policed neighborhood. Safety being a neighborhood where there's a lot of people that look like me. Safety being that kind of thing. Whereas, like, I don't know, it's just safety that's very dependent on very specific values, and those values are typically rooted in white supremacy mm-hmm. and patriarchy. Um, and I think a lot of white women need to unpack that a lot. Not to say that there isn't gender-based violence, because there absolutely is. Um, but just, like, that's a common stopping point, I feel, for a lot of white women, is this this over-assertion or this over-sensation of fear that isn't necessarily correctly placed. Yeah, I think this storyteller told the same kind of anecdote at a city council. Actually, it wasn't a city council. It was, um, what was the... Human, oh, human relations, relations council. council. It was a public meeting by the human relations council when um, Daryl, forgetting Daryl's last name right now, um, was like he he's a he's a black student from Valpo. He had graduated at the time that he was pulled over by, by police, and it was it was the county police. It wasn't the Valpo city police, and he ended up being arrested. The police said it was because he was, you know, talking back and resisting arrest. But from his telling of that whole experience it was he was really afraid for himself and his friends that were in the car anyway so um when he was working with some valpo faculty and staff and they were reaching out to the human relations council about like this as an example of racial profiling and the human relations council had wanted to um write a letter and you know public letter to publish in the paper just to name that this profiling had happened and the um, Fraternal Order of Police showed up, you know, en masse to that public hearing, um, in addition to people supporting uh, Daryl and the other members of the um, Human Relations Council that were concerned that this had happened. And everybody was given, like, two minutes or something to speak at the mic, and um, it was, I don't know, I could, I could talk too long about the whole experience, but... Um, this particular storyteller had taken the mic and was telling this kind of story. And I happened to be out in the hallway because it was so crowded you couldn't get in the room. And there were two um, white men who, from my perception, were in their like 70s or 80s and lifelong residents of, if not Valparaiso, at least Porter County. And they just were doing this incessant peanut gallery the whole time, which was so frustrating because it was so hard to hear. But they just, like, when she said, I feel safer in Gary than I do in Valpo, they just couldn't hear that. They could not tolerate that. They just, 
dismissed it as outright absurd. And I mean, to your, you know, I know you were talking about gender, um, Reagan, but f- like the fact that safety is linked in some, some way to am I with people like me, right? Because this storyteller is in some ways thinking about safety for her and Gary is feeling like, I mean, I know this place. These these are my neighbors. This is, um, my city is a black city. I don't feel like out of place. I very much feel like I belong. And so her sense of security, even though she might be able to talk very explicitly about crime in Gary, um, it's not the same thing as feeling unsafe, right? Whereas I feel like when white people talk about crime, they think that everybody's unsafe all of a sudden. Um, and certainly these these men in the Human Relations Council hearing were feeling safe in Valpo because they had lived there, grown up there, looked like all the rest of the white people, didn't have to worry about violence coming at them for their skin color. <laughs> that story always makes me... like. The fact that it was initiated by this guy getting pulled over and then, like, arrested because assuming for police brutality and intimidation. And then, like, what did the cops do? Prove themselves right by showing up en masse with guns on their hips. Yeah, it was a really intense experience. But perhaps not where we totally need to spend the rest of our time. But I think that just, like, in terms of that sense of safety that you were talking about... Mm -hmm. um, Reagan for sure. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio on WVLP LP 103.1 FM and streaming live online at WVLP.org. I'm Allison Schutte with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs, and today we're talking about two stories from um, a lifelong resident of Gary, Indiana, a black woman, and the second story, um, she's reflecting on having arrived as a student at Valpo and seen um, more Caucasian people, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people than she'd ever seen in in her whole life. Uh, Do we want to say more about that part of the story or do we want to talk about the experiences of harassment that that she's recounting? If I can real quick, just one thing. I do want to say that I want to give more, um, like, credence whatever to um her the speaker's experience of discomfort on seeing so many like blue hair blonde eyed or, pe- or blue hair probably would be more comfortable with blue haired people um <laughs> blonde hair blue eyed people um just because i am not as a white woman if i go to gary by my lonesome and i'm like walking around the streets of gary I'm not going to get followed by somebody like with a Confederate flag in their truck that's going to follow me from, you know, my destination to mm-hmm. my home. Um, so I do just want to say, because I, I don't want it to come across as like there is no need for fear in regards to gender, but also like she is having like a racial and gendered oh, yeah, experience right? of fear. And I just want to make sure that I'm very explicitly stating like, yes, her fear is appropriate. It is the the white lady fear that is usually inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> White ladies need to work on it. Her fear completely warranted. Like rooted in actual experience. Rooted in experience and rooted in just reality and also like yeah. systemic racism. Like I 
think you could argue the Human Rights Council incident. I would say that as a systemic thing. You can't argue that the systemic racism comes from the people in the Confederate flag truck. Those are just people being terrible. Um, but yeah, like she is at risk for a very real type of danger that I simply am not at risk for, at least in the, the U.S., due to the way that I look, due to the way, well, due to the color of my skin. I think it's important too, like there's not even like an equivalent of that. And that's like kind of like sucks about white people, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like that she could come, the speaker could come to Valpo and have that experience of like getting the brights turned on in a truck behind her with Confederate flags hanging off the end. Like there isn't like, you know, like if I were to go into Gary, it's just like, I feel like white people would say like, well, I was threatened, but it's like, in reality, you just like saw a group of people of color. Like, you know, it's like, yeah. it's so hard to like get people on reality in terms of privilege and what experiences happen to you. Because if you want to inflate like, oh, I have stereotypes. And so I was scared when I saw non-white people. Like that's not the same as being chased by somebody driving with their brights on. Yeah, I would push back that against that just a little, just because I feel like people who are visibly religious, particularly people who are visibly, um, Muslim or sick, I think they can have that equivalent experience regardless of, of race, especially if they wear a head covering. Um, but yes. Wait, what do you mean? Just like, yeah, they can be, I, I think what I'm hearing you saying is like the instant targeting of simply because of like your skin, simply because you oh, are. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I would, yeah, I would just push back. No, on I know. I to totally agree with you. What I mean is like, as like, oh, there's not like the, there's not like a white person equivalent. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Unless. Yeah. But, like, you know, it's like there isn't a flag that, like, is saying, like, I love white people slavery like the Confederate flag does. Yeah, yeah. There's, not, there, there's not an equivalent of that. Yeah. But it's like white people want to inflate the fear that they, that they have to, Just, to that point because uh -huh. they literally don't understand what it means to feel that actual fear of being chased with your brights on. That's not the same, Karen, as, yeah. like, seeing a group of people of color looking yeah. at you. Like, Just existing in the like, same space. Exactly, but it's like, but because Karen can't even, has never even had that experience, it's just like we have to take you know, Karen's word the same as we have to take this speaker's word because Karen doesn't even know what it feels like to be targeted for her identity. The so scale. she can't even wrap her mind around it. Yeah, the scale is so skewed. And that's why we get like, you know, all. in my opinion, this is how we get all lives matter from black lives matter because white people literally cannot grasp the concept of privilege if you if it has not happened to you i mean you know progressives sometimes can understand this but it's just like if you're saying all lives matter in response then you are literally so ignorant to the fact of how people of color are treated and the fact that you want to inflate your experiences against that is just this is what happens folks if we just can't <laughs> live on the same level of reality and we just want to inflate all of our things is the same like we're not going to be able to find common ground i just it's really frustrating yeah, what did you all make of the bus ride to JCPenney's? And that surprises and me zero percent. <laughs> not that it surprises you, but like in terms of like it as an experience of fear, racism, exclusion. Um, not that like we have to compare and contrast like the Confederate flag truck with the spotlights following you, because that feels far more threatening mm -hmm. and something really could potentially have happened to them um with the this other level or 
I don't know, yeah, of racism that they experience on the bus. This is somebody going, this is a person who has a certain amount of power going specifically out of their way to be racist. So you're talking about the bus driver now yeah. when you say that. Um, because all this bus driver, all this person has to do, like a similar, same thing, like kind of, not really, but like at Starbucks, all I have to do is take your money and give you your coffee. That's my job. That's my whole job. This person's whole job is to just like, you know, drop people off. And I also have taken the V-line. I took it a lot, especially in college. Um, and yeah, it's not uncommon at all, just in case people aren't familiar with the V-line. It's not uncommon at all to ask like, hey, this is us, like a store or something on the way. Can you just drop me off there? That is a very common thing on the V-line and they almost always accommodate you. Um, That's a stop on the V-line. I was going to say. Oh, is it? it okay. Is. I didn't it's literally a stop. It's a stop. Yeah. Well. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So like this person just, he... I don't know if it's a he, I'm assuming. He just deliberately went out of his way to practice systemic racism. Um, and I'm not comfortable calling this a microaggression. I don't know if people would call it mm-hmm. like something, because he didn't like he didn't explicitly say, no, I saw you talking to this black woman and I don't want to serve you anymore. Um, but it's not a microaggression. It's pretty, it feels pretty explicit, but I don't know if there's like a specific term for what this is besides systemic racism. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, he just went out of his way to not do his job and to not provide the service he's being paid to provide because he did not want to. I don't think, I don't know how else you're, to see it. Yeah. You're reading it as very intentional and conscious on his part, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah. yeah. And, and I am not necessarily excluding that reading. Um, I feel like the storyteller's interpretation of him lends itself in that direction um, and and this is not to um, uh, make allowances for his behavior at all. I do think it's possible that his unconscious racism could have made it so that he's not listening when they say as soon as so if we follow the storyteller, um, her friend Kelly gets on the bus. Kelly doesn't present as a person of color. The bus driver is really friendly to Kelly. When the bus driver sees that Kelly is with the storyteller, um, and the storyteller doesn't go into details about her own appearance, but we can kind of gather from the other parts of her story we've heard that she visibly presents as a black woman. Um, He seems to stop being nice. His attitude completely shifted is what the storyteller says. Um, the next thing we know, according to the storyteller, is that he drives past um, the stop. So, and I don't even know if it's worth like considering the unconscious racism version of this. That somehow, because you know his racism um, kicks in when he sees that Kelly is friends with a black bus rider. Like, that he would suddenly be deaf to, like, knowing the stop that they wanted to get off on. But I think maybe the only reason I'm bringing it up is because when I think people talk about microaggressions, they're usually talking about it as unconscious bias on the part of the person who's perpetrating the microaggression. And I feel like the critique of anybody ever using the term microaggression is that that serves the perpetrator mm-hmm. not the person who's mm-hmm. you know being impacted because like a microaggression is never micro yeah when it's landing on you 
I guess I never. I guess I didn't have the same concept of a microaggression being unconscious on the part okay. of the person doing it. So maybe we just have different. Um, oh yeah, probably definitions. Should, kind of at the beginning of every welcome project, we should just go through all the terms. That we need. <laughs> F is for friends. <laughs> I mean, it would be helpful. <laughs> but yeah, I think we just might have some different yeah, yeah. conceptions. But I do agree with you, like, your ultimate critique, and most, like, people of color's really ultimate critique of, like, the term microaggression and how it serves the perpetrator versus the person it was yeah. perpetrated on. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just a failing of language on my part. Yeah. Well, you don't have to apologize. And, and I mean, like, this might not even fall into the category of a microaggression, even if it is unconscious racism. Mm-hmm. Because they they do actually, according to the storyteller, say, hey, like, we're not getting off because you yeah. missed our stop and we know that you have to reverse route. And so mm-hmm. you're going to go by our stop again. Um, and so at that point, it's like, uh, you can't really claim unconscious racism anymore if you're just simply unwilling to now give mm-hmm. the writers what they no because mistakes happen requested. but instead of making room for like this person this bus driver making room for a mistake and be like oh my bad he was like yeah no i would like to further make this your problem and your fault and yeah. you need to get off and i don't know where the end of i don't know that particular route i don't know where the end of that route is but it's probably not by the jc penny yeah I had a different, some different thanks and thoughts. Um, I feel like mine is a little, okay, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, um, they get on the bus. She notices that the bus driver maybe stops interacting with her. And so we can maybe think like, I don't know, is that her feeling that way or is that actually happening? And then we see like, okay, he doesn't let them off the bus. And he says, I didn't hear you. And then it's like, okay he didn't hear me it's like is that really me and then he says like oh well you know i'm just i'm gonna have to go ahead and 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 turn around and it's just like i i can see that you know it's like that's something i feel like you know if he was just being short with somebody in general like that's maybe what he would do just like yeah well i'm gonna turn around anyway so you can stay on the bus and i so it's like on an on an like an individual event level It's like, is this, like, can I, if I were to take this to court or something, I don't know, some stupid, like, could I prove that there was racism happening here? It's like, I think not necessarily, but the problem, and and I'm only saying this because it's like, this is how I would think that white people would sort of work through this if they didn't want to engage in the racism conversation, Mm -hmm. is they would say that this sort of, this this could happen to anybody. And, but the thing that I would, I want people, you know, to leave you with, listeners (laughs) listeners <laughs> is like the idea that like yes this this you know this situation could could have gone either way like maybe he didn't mean to or maybe he did mean to or you know but it's the the problem is that when we don't listen to people of color in majority white cities who consistently have these experiences over and over and over again like that's that's what we need to listen to right it's just like it doesn't when you're sharing these experiences you know it's like it wasn't explicit racism, so it's harder for white people to sort of grasp like what that means to to the speaker, like what that means to her to like not be let off the bus and have to go around again. You know, it doesn't seem big enough. But the problem is that, you know, I would argue that there was racism happening here. And, you know, it's not as explicit as like calling people names or something. And so it's harder to identify. But I would 
say based on how the speaker has already told us in her other story that this is probably something that happens semi-frequently in the community because people see her as an other they make assumptions about her and so it's just like she probably goes through multiple situations like this and so I think it's not it's not wise to discount the experience mm-hmm. based on you know your perceived level of racism that you think is happening there or not mm-hmm. you know she the problem is that like when people share these experiences with you they're not telling they're telling you one experience like I, I could tell you one experience about somebody harassing me for being gay but it's just like the reality is it's like there are dozens more of those <laughs> but it's just like sure the one I share with you might not seem like that much but it's just like if I go through that every single day like I I understand what toll that adds up to even though you might not from this story I don't know. That's what well, I mean, it was good. enough of a toll that they did not want to take the bus. Yeah, back. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they might not even had the same bus driver, but it was just like not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. We're gonna walk, and J.C. Penny back to campus is doable, but that's like a thirty-minute. Yeah, this is not a walkable walk. city at all. Like you have and, to walk I mean, partially have to on walk the highway. Like yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like I've had like amazing V-line bus drivers, and I've also had like horrible V-line bus drivers. Yeah. And like when I was in uh, high school and I worked at Dunkin' Donuts, like the guy who would drive the bus, I couldn't always take it because it wasn't always at the right time. But the day that I had taken it to work, he came inside to get a coffee, and he didn't recognize me as being on the bus, and he like was belligerent over the five cent price increase of a medium black coffee and he threw the coffee at my feet i've never had people throw coffee at me before and that was the only one this is like you know i i don't know people could just be kind (laughs) (laughs) well before we head out today please check out wvlp's full schedule at wvlp.org We highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And again, Thursdays at 2 and Fridays at 9. Morning Black stands for Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, and it focuses on concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color, especially here in Northwest Indiana. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and we forgot to say... <laughs> That on Saturday, April 15th, there is going to be a Welcome Project panel. It's Passing the Baton. So um, Liz Werfel and myself, as co-directors, will be passing the baton to um, Professor of Social Work, Caroline Ban, and Professor of History, Lucas Kelly. Um, and you'll get to hear from former people who have been interviewed by the Welcome Project um, for all three of our initiatives We're going to give them a chance to ask us questions in return. Um, And there'll also be time for a Q&A from the audience. So that's Saturday, April 15th, and it's from 11 to 1230. It's at the Helgi Center, which is in the Chapel of the Resurrection on Valparaiso University's campus. We would love to see you there. Excellent. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org slash support.